Hey guys, what's up? Welcome to Humans and Magic, the podcast that gets deep and personal with your favorite players from Magic the Gathering. I'm your host, James Sue. Our guest today is one of the better-known Canadian Magic personalities out there. Car Yoon Tom, or KYT, is the founder of ManaDeprived.com. ManaDeprived was one of the first major Canadian Magic content sites. In fact, you could say that KYT put Canadian Magic on the map in a big way. He currently produces the amazing First Strike podcast, which is done completely live, and also serves as the social media coordinator for face-to-face games. One of the big themes that we focus on in this talk is the art of social media. KYT is super passionate about this space, and we spend considerable time in chatting about content marketing. We also talk about pet peeves, being a genuine person, and a few other surprising things along the way. We had a lot of fun chatting, and I hope that you have fun listening. A quick heads up, there is some background noise from my kitchen as I was recording this episode. Nothing crazy, but it does sound pretty funny at times. I promise to avoid repeating that in the future. And one more thing, I've started a Patreon page at patreon.com slash jamesu. That's J-A-M-E-S-H-S-U. Rather than bombard you with advertisements, I've started this page with the hopes of recouping some of my costs. This podcast is definitely a labor of love for me, and your support allows me to keep it going. I have some awesome benefits on Patreon, and I've also set up some goals to hit. Now, this is the first time I've done something like this, so I'd really appreciate it if you could even consider giving to the cause. Please take two seconds, go to patreon.com slash and see what it's all about. The rest is up to you. All right, here we go. This is Humans and Magic with KYT. Hey, KYT, how are you doing? I'm doing awesome, actually, James. How are you doing? Oh, not bad. It's early morning in China where I'm recording, but I am very pumped up to talk to you. I'm, I'm pumped up just to be able to be on your bucket list and, and be someone that you can cross off that. <laughs> yeah, I know. We wanted to do this for such a long time. I think I don't know how many episodes ago it was, but or how many months ago, but I'm really glad that we could sit down and and do this. I don't know how it will turn out, but I think you'll probably be more the master interview, interviewing The Apprentice as opposed to the other way around because you have such an extensive range and experience podcasting. So I'm really excited to do this with you. Really appreciate that. So for listeners who may not know too much about your background, KYT, can you just give us a brief introduction so right now i think that magic has exploded so much with twitter with reddit since i first came onto the scene that the new i would even consider myself old school at this point i'm one of the more old school canadian personalities uh, that the new school players some a lot of you probably have never heard of me but uh, i'm most known for starting manadeprived.com the first I would say the first established Canadian focused content website for Magic the Gathering. It got picked up by Face to Face Games. It's now magic.facetofacegames.com. So a lot of people just credit me for being one of the main catalysts for the resurgence of uh, Canadian Magic. I started the website 
a lot of the top players signed up, got got on board, uh, were writing articles, and, and they attribute me starting a website to being able to connect with other top Canadian players, and they attribute their success, their pro tour success to that, their initial pro tour success. So I'm very humbled by that. So that's what I'm most famous for. But beyond that, I'm just someone that is also really passionate about playing the game itself. I'm not just a content guy. I feel like a lot of us content guys are just labeled as terrible players. But no, I've made the pro tour twice. I used to be a top 50 for my age group chess player in the country. So I've got a lot of strategy pedigree. And I think that really covers the specific things about me. I'm currently still the content manager for for face-to-facegames.com. I'm their social media strategist and, and marketer. And yeah, I, I think that's that's the base of it all. And where are you based out of? I'm based out of uh, Montreal. So I'm a big Montreal Canadiens fan. Okay, that also means your French must be pretty good then. My French is excellent, uh, but that's because I, I was born in, in a city called La Prairie and went to elementary school. Uh, well, my first best friend was, was francophone, but uh, I, I wouldn't say every person in Montreal speaks French. In fact, some, some, one of my friends that was born in, in a nearby city uh, is really bad at French. But uh, I, luckily, luckily enough, I was put into a good French school. And then my high school had, had French classes. And even though it's been a while, it's been a while since I've had to use French on a daily basis. So it has, unfortunately, I have to admit that it has regressed. And I'm so embarrassed about my French abilities because I also grew up in Canada, but I did not get a chance to practice it after high school. It's been so many years. And so I'm only asking you, but I'm not going to actually test you. I, I'm going to assume that your proficiency <laughs> is at a order of magnitude higher than mine. I, I would hope so. I would hope so. <laughs> Speaking it all the way up till I still use it, just not as freaking as I would like to keep it at an elite level, let's say. Now, I am curious, are there many French-speaking Magic players, and has there ever been content created that is actually in the French language for Magic players? So I, I think there's a lot um, I've heard before, like Lotus Noir or, or, or these magazines based in like France, that, that type of French. And I think people like Guillaume Matignon or, or, or a lot of other French pros were associated with, with that magazine, whether as contributors or I'm not too clear on that or writers, but uh, fun, fun history uh, lesson uh, that people don't know is that um, for, for Quebec, it is very much, there, there are very segregated areas of, of areas where it's mainly people who speak French, mainly people who speak English. So, so there are people that, in Quebec, they don't really consume English content, and they're, they're always looking for that French content. But prior, so prior to Mana Deprived starting, and maybe what sort of influenced me to start Mana Deprived with Pascal Maynard, noted player, one of the more famous Canadian players that we have, uh, he actually started a site called Int Oblivion, and that site was French content, uh, French players, and he was going... When face-to-face games was just a really small store, he would actually drive all the way from Quebec City to Montreal, which was at least, I think, two and a half hours off the top of my head. And he would just come in the store and write up deck lists, 
uh, top eight deck list, write some strategy content in French, and he would get French players to write content in, in, in French. And so that was like the first one of the first people that I knew of that tried to do what I ended up doing, which is starting their own content site. And uh, so Into Oblivion came before Man of Deprived and was started by you know now noted player Pascal Maynard. Interesting. It sounds like Mana Deprived is the first really major magic content site that is in the English language, right? In in, in Canada, yes. I, I would say that I would, I mean, I'm trying to, to be humble, but I, I think that's widely accepted as the first site that provided not just articles, like articles across the country from people across the country, podcasts, videos, and also comics. So I think we were the first to try to do it all. And and I think we we had a very good run. That's awesome. I know that right now you have two active podcasting ventures. One is called First Strike. And that's a magic strategy podcast, very topical, right? Right, right. Very. Uh, we tried to make it more of a debate show, just to uh, we. The strategy is you have to differentiate yourself, and we're not going to be able to compete with the game podcasts or other pro tour player podcasts that are coming out because we just don't have the the same credentials. Uh, but we can attack it from a different angle. Try to be more entertaining. Try to have more hot takes. Try to discuss the community issues that maybe pros aren't either comfortable talking about. And I think that's what makes it such an entertaining show because it's just completely different than just consistently showing talking about standard and modern. Uh, even though we will talk about what we feel is is the best deck in a given format. Um, we will do that, but uh, we, we do try to attack it from a different angle as well. That definitely resonates with me because the couple times I've listened to First Strike, that's what I really enjoyed is that it's a group of friends talking, but you guys are also having some type of discourse, right? There's not agreements across the board. You're not just going through news, magic news. You're actually having good discussions about stuff. And from what I've heard, it's really no holds barred like it's just everyone is kind of free to say what they want and they have everyone has their own point of view and it makes for a pretty good show in that sense right and and they can really talk about anything um i'm i'm thankful that we haven't hit i think we're we that might someday change but we we might hit a point where i we have to go back on some like tone it down i would say because when we first started, because we were so small and and not mainstream, like one of my first podcasts, we were allowed to swear, and I I, I didn't censor us at all. And now, like, we're, I'm allowing people to mention whatever sponsor they have, whatever competing store they can talk about it outside of face to face games, because it's just, you know, I'm I'm small, I'm still small enough and niche enough that. I just feel like that allows me to be so free on that show and everyone to, to guests or co-hosts to, to feel free, to feel that they could speak their mind without having to worry, oh, will our sponsor not like it because it, I, I'm talking bad about this upcoming set and you know, the whole point of stores is to sell cards. You know, Will they be mad? And, and I'm thankful that uh, ultimately we, I never had to care about that stuff. So yeah, for people who have not had a chance, definitely check out the First Strike podcast. It's a really 
informative, fun, discussion-based podcast. So just uh, throwing it out there for listeners. And KYT, the other podcast you have right now is called Searching for Rachel Mack. Is that right? Right. That, that, that's a, a podcast I do with Dave Lee, uh, Derling around creator and, and all around super nice guy, also an Asian guy, um, just really a big talent uh, when it comes to drawing comics. And uh, I have to say, even though there's been all this different content um, since Mana Deprived started, the, the most consistent and most popular content has come from Dave. His comics have, have reached the highest views, have even retweeted or been replied to uh, by people like LSV, who has mentioned, specifically mentioned certain comics as uh, like tweeted them out. So um, Dave has been a huge, huge help in that uh, realm. But uh, in, in this venture, in this other podcast, it's just really a, um, I would say just talking about our lives and, and what's going on beyond magic for, for people that want to know more about me. And we just tackle uh, topics not from an expert point of view, but from just people experiencing things and testing things that we read about and, and giving our actual um, experiences and not not some um, <laughs> I would just like to say that there's just a lot of wannabes on YouTube and everywhere that, that talk about how you know they've learned and distilled the <laughs> top billionaire se- secrets from billionaires and stuff like that and our cast is, is definitely nothing like that it's is as real as it gets I see so that means you're not going to show the Ferrari in your garage or the, the big house you have as you walk around videoing yourself? Correct. Correct. No Ty Lopez. No. Uh, and, and Ty Lopez have, has influenced his own army of, of followers have decided to copy him on YouTube. But for us, you're, you're, that podcast is all about how we experience things and what we've learned over the last 30 or so years of our existence and to talk about them. And I've really enjoyed that podcast that you do with Dave because maybe because of the podcast that I do myself, I really gravitate towards those types of topics. And I feel that you and Dave, especially you, you're really willing to get very personal and might I say vulnerable in the podcast. I think that's a really rare thing to see these days. Yeah, I... Just, just people think that it's just, again, you know, we're probably going to get into it a lot deeper. But the thing that riles me up is people that claim they, they watch a few videos, read a few books, and now they know everything. And they're trying to teach you stuff. And it's like you aren't able to tell me how you've applied these lessons to your own life. You, you haven't told me what failed for you, what worked, what didn't work. And so it's it's that's a lot of garbage content on on the internet right now yeah so just in terms of organizing running the podcast what you have right now i want to know what kind of lessons did you learn from previous attempts at podcasting that you've applied towards your latest ventures because i know that previously for mana deprived you worked on podcasts like the a-team crazy talk and other projects and now you have done this for a number of years you've really you know i've seen your approach change over the years as well but how would you describe the lessons you've learned from working on previous podcasts and applying them to what you're doing now so i don't know how if it's a fair or unfair criticism of me but 
for the for many episodes, it was definitely a fair criticism that I didn't talk much during the A team. Uh, at least once, um, because my initial attention and the A team was one of the most successful podcasts of its time. Uh, it's no longer regarded as such as, as other podcasts have come up, but during its time, it was the second most popular podcast around behind only limited resources uh, based on all the data that I remember collecting. So it was a huge hit, a big deal at the time. Um, would it still be the second best now? Unlikely, but uh, I, I just want to say that it was a huge achievement to be recognized as the go-to podcast if you didn't necessarily want to listen to Limited. Um, but the, there's a lot of lessons. So so the, back to the criticisms and what I wanted to say is that people, it's a constant joke that I, I don't talk a lot. And even now, it's and and it's apparent that these people don't listen to my latest shows because I definitely taken vocal, um, strong. I have you can hear my voice in the first strike or searching for Rachel Mac, but uh, what, the original intention of the A team was I wasn't really supposed to be on. I wanted to find people that would do for a good show and and let it run because I think the problem with a lot of content, right? Uh, people that can produce content, a lot of problem is like they have the talent and the skill, but they don't want or don't know how to get started and and, and do the rest. For example, why did it take so long for Jerry T to start the game podcast? Because he probably didn't, you know, have an editor, didn't know where to upload it. A lot of people, pros, have approached me because they know I, I've done all these podcasts. Like, where do I upload this stuff? How do I set things up? They don't know, so. If, if it were set up for them, maybe they would do a lot more content. So I was setting this the stage up for potential podcasters to be able to carry the A-team. But I ended up having some amount of chemistry with the people that I decided to bring on. And I stuck around because they needed someone, as you know, to, to open Skype and, and start the recorder and start <laughs> and do all that stuff. So I was essential to the podcast. Uh, because of that, and I was editing the show. So I was just too key of a component. Uh, I ended up sticking around, but I think I, what I've learned is that we didn't really have a plan for that show. Uh, so it was hard to know what my role was. Uh, on First Strike, the big difference is I know I'm the host. Everyone knows that. I'm the main host. I come up with all the topics. I direct the show. I sort of tell people when they're supposed to talk. I know when to change topics. I decide how to how the show ends, what what to topics that we have left to cover or not cover based on the time we have left. And the hosts also the co-hosts know the rules that they're supposed to take a side on an issue and stuff like that. So I think really the planning and the roles uh, is really important because I don't have to try to be funny because I'm the host. I'm just the topic guy. And so there's not that pressure of me having to do things that I'm not. And I felt really comfortable. And uh, I mean, the A-team, there were times where my castmates were worried that I wasn't, um, that I might leave the show because that I didn't feel maybe appreciated enough. And uh, whereas on First Strike, everyone knows their role and they're happy. They're they're happy with their airtime. And, and that's something that, that is also a big lesson that I think other hosts don't do a good job of. They tend to take over the show or they have a guest on 
they don't let the guests talk as much as they would like to, and they just overpower it. So I, I think that's what I've I've learned, and um, I just have this chemistry with Dave, and it's just a lot easier. So there wasn't too many lessons that I needed to bring to to searching for Rachel Mack. I think really the key, James, that I'm trying to get down to is that learning to do a show with three other people or more that's the big challenge and i think that's the big experience that i gain from running the a-team and crazy talk which were usually four people casts and sometimes you had a guest so managing airtime on skype is a huge challenge uh, versus google hangouts or twitch because on hangouts and twitch you can actually see when someone is about wants to talk or not if you just do it purely on skype you don't see there's no visual cues so there's a lot of people talking over each other and you know if you don't have the if you don't have the chemistry if you don't use the chat you're you're going to be out of sync a lot so um, yeah that's a lot of things that that I've learned that have brought over to first strike it's just that communication that structure but uh, I still don't think you know we're all busy people so show notes consistent show notes isn't exactly something that even to this day that I follow because you know again it's it's busy and I just have a rough outline usually in my head and my co-hosts have been fine with uh, they've been excellent to be able to be not need to be prepared or prompt they they just have an opinion already so uh, that's been good but yeah there's definitely a few things I've heard from what you just said that I want to unpack a little bit the first thing is that it does sound like in a team-based podcast, everyone needs to know their role, right? You need to know who's the host or who's leading which topic. It sounds like the A-team, it was more organic and it wasn't as defined maybe as it was in First Strike. Is that fair to say? Yeah, it was just organic. It's just like, oh, um, well, near the end of the, the run of the show, it's just like, okay, got on the show, maybe half an hour before the show, it's like, what are we going to talk about? What did you guys play? What did you guys do? And we didn't have a, yeah, we didn't have a structure of, we, we decide right before the show who would who would do the intro. So it was uh, very, I wouldn't say very organic. It was just organic, period. The other thing I found interesting is that the joke, the running joke about you not talking enough because I thought that the other personalities were strong enough and verbal enough where that was okay that you could be the the man behind the curtain or the man behind the scenes the producer so to speak i never felt like they were worrying about whether you were talking enough on air if you know what i mean because they were just going on and they had their own things that they wanted to get off their chest so i never actually knew this sort of behind the scenes perception so that i thought that was interesting yeah, I mean, it the, that perception even grew stronger when I decided to start Crazy Talk, a legacy, legacy podcast with three different people. Uh, Jonathan Medina, Alexander Hain, Frankie Richards. So it's like, why are you starting another show? And sometimes I would, I would record both shows back to back. And if I were in their shoes, they were right to worry that it's like, what, what are you doing? Are you going to jump ship soon? But like my intention to start another show was just to create more content for Mana Deprived. I wanted, you know, a general show and I wanted a legacy focus show. And once again, I run into the challenge of people not 
It's just weren't people that wanted to do it. They didn't know how. They didn't want to record Skype, you know, like all that stuff that I talked about before. So I'm like, okay, I'm just gonna head. <laughs> I'm just gonna start this off, and I guess I'll end up continuing because I have to. Because I also have to be the editor for this one, and uh, be the Skype recorder for this one. But it was never, uh, yeah, my intention to to just leave the A team. Was it also difficult managing the personalities or egos of the various? folks involved in a show because I, I can only begin to imagine because the podcast that I have right now obviously it's one-on-one -on -one, so I don't work with a team and I'm just really curious about that uh, definitely we there there's been many I mean I wouldn't say like they were violent fights or anything but you know, there, there were definitely strong discussions disagreements um, yeah between different castmates uh myself included i've i've butt heads uh into some of those guys but as you can imagine it would just be like a discussion between brothers like you you fight you disagree about how the show's run or, or what this idea is or how you guys joke about each other um you know some would know that the first couple episodes of crazy talk was pretty was pretty brutal because john and alex were really going at it and not just for show. They were pretty, um, let's just say, passionate would be a better word, about whatever they were talking about, whatever side they were arguing. And uh, definitely felt like um, people were going to leave the show due to certain uh, personality conflicts. So it is a challenge. And I, it is something that has happened on both shows on either crazy talk and a team there, there's been over the many years of recording you know there's there were definitely episodes here and there where there was conflict and how do you feel about your podcasting game now and in terms of the products that you you put out you mentioned that things like show notes or smaller things maybe you still need to adjust and perhaps get better at or create them but are there other things about first strike or searching for Rachel Mac that you feel like you still need to work on or could still improve on first strike it would be interesting to see me as one of the co-hosts instead of the moderator I think one of the things that might bore people about me is because I take such a neutral view I try to stay out of the MTG drama there's a lot of MTG drama right now as, as you would know happening on Twitter and I tend to stay away from that even though people are like oh my god magic is so doom and gloom the community is horrible stuff like that and and I guess I, I just follow the right people because I don't see it that way I'm just always happy and always ignoring any negative content I, I'm just a positive person or, or I just take the negative content and I throw it out the window um, but what, what can I improve on? Yeah, I'd be really curious to be uh, one of those co-hosts that take a side, that debate, that don't doesn't take the the, the neutral non-position that I often take uh, would be something I'd like to see um, on the show. But outside of that, I think I'm I'm hitting my stride. I mean, I'm I think doing it live is just or in one take with Dave and try to do it with a minimal editing. It's just something that I've grown accustomed. Like the A-Team or Crazy Talk were recorded, uh, but all that practice in talking, all that practice in trying to not stumble on your words, to not say like a lot, which 
I, I never did, but I'm saying uh, Dave still does that or write, uh, you know what, or you know what I'm saying, stuff like that were, are things that a lot of podcasters need to improve on. But I'm thankful all that experience that I've had has allowed me to not have, I would like to think, James, that I don't have a line that I just say a lot without really <laughs> noticing. I, I, th- I think... I'm in a good spot. I think the stuff that I'd love to improve on are just different stuff, like how to market the show, maybe how to structure the show, uh, more consistent with the show notes, which you already mentioned. But there's nothing in my podcasting game that that uh, specifically when it comes to talking that that I would change outside of, like again, hoping and wishing that other people that want to see me be more argumentative, get to see that side. Well, I'll just say that in that type of team-based podcast, you actually need someone who is more of a neutral middle person to introduce the topics, right? Because otherwise, I think that role is actually essential. I've seen in other shows like The Brainstorm Show where there's three of them and one person brings up the topic and then the two other folks will actually then debate two sides of a position i actually so i actually think what you described there it's not actually wrong per se you actually need a straight guy to to do that i I think the issue is that the straight guy the neutral guy is essential and that's a problem for me because i've like i mentioned multiple times with the show that i've had to be like the essential guy and i would like i guess someone to take that role at some point so that I could experience being, uh, so that people can see different sides of me. Because they, they, I, I think the the general audience sees like this bland KYT type image. And frankly, I'm surprised when people like you, uh, a lot of different listeners from the A-team, uh, Crazy Talk, First Strike that transferred to listening to searching for Rachel Mack. Like you guys actually care what I have to say. Like you guys are drawn enough by my I would like to say bland personality to learn what I have to say about other topics. So I'm, I'm thankful you guys are, are able to see through the bland image and, and find something attractive. Uh, yeah. To, to want to come and listen to my non MTG podcast. So I appreciate it, James. Oh, you're welcome. And I don't think you're bland at all. I, I think it's whether I'm a, whatever content I'm, I'm trying to, trying to consume, whether it's podcasts or music or art or anything, I always try to look at it from different ways. Like it's kind of like when I'm watching sports, I'm very interested more in actual, actually how the team is being run as opposed to how the, the games that's actually being played, you know? So I'm, I'm, maybe I'm one of these weird people that cares more about how, what goes on behind the scenes. And I can tell that a lot of work goes behind the scenes. And so I don't think, I never thought for a second that you were bland because I, to me, you were, you've always been sort of the, the ringleader that had to pull everyone together. And that's the hardest job of all. Well, well, that's why I like searching for Rachel Mag. I don't have to be the co-host. I just speak my mind. I just let it uh, go unleashed. And that's not to say that I don't do it on first strike. I will, but uh, I try to be the facilitator more so than not. So how do you and Dave develop such a great chemistry on searching for Rachel Mack. It just feels like you guys have known each other forever and you guys probably have, but how do you get that type of chemistry in a podcast? Because other than listening to 
Brian and Jerry on the game podcast, I usually don't hear something like that. So I'm curious how you guys manage to do it. Yeah, it's I, I'm not sure how deep uh, the friendship Jerry and, and Brian's run, but but mine with Dave uh, was all the way in 2010. So it's been a while now. Um, he was actually an A-team fan. And we met up at the first GP I ever attended in Toronto, GP Toronto, uh, when it was Scars of Mirrodin. And he showed up and he had a picture. He drew us up. He drew me, Jesse, Scott, and Jay, the, the original founding members of the A-team. And he produced the, the first art, like the featured image that, that we would put on our podcast. The, he did one of our first tokens of the A-team. And so I've known him for, for that amount of time, uh, but we just connect on a wide variety of interests. But I guess we have we have the same humor. We both like the UFC. We both like magic, of course. And I, I feel like he's not someone that I need to... I can joke about things and he knows where, where I'm coming from or I don't have to explain my jokes or i don't know so it uh it's not something that was really developed i think we were just lucky to to find each other and he's just someone i'm comfortable to talk with and you'll notice that instead of finding someone with strong voices with someone that has a stronger voice than me that might overpower me on a on a podcast which which uh, obviously we can say may have happened on on the eighth team and crazy talk i wanted someone that could could basically be be my equal but of course dave is is also fine with me being the facilitator the topic uh driver of that show as well so so i do definitely take a stronger uh role on, on rachel mack than him but yeah it's 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 there's no secret sauce it's just uh it's like finding my wife james it's just like you know, she was we just connected from from day one and sure we we learned about each other's habits that we've improved our chemistry over time but the, the the bulk of the chemistry was there from the beginning and I would like to say that uh, with Dave that that's what happened as well that's awesome yeah sometimes with friends or loved ones you just have that instant connection, right? You you incre- incrementally gets better, but the baseline or how you guys started with sounds like for you and Dave, it was a really good foundation to begin with. Right. And some might think I'm really good friends with Jerry. Jerry's actually coming over to my place in, in uh, two weeks for DreamHack. But I've only met the guy like once a few, t- maybe once a year. I see him once a year. But again, he's someone that when we when we connect we just we just connect we're able to be super friendly with each other and root for each other's projects and and that's it sometimes you just find those friends and then there's people that i'm sure james for you like you've met for a long time and and you know you don't you just don't connect as well <laughs> that's right i i have friends i'm sure you do as well where you don't need to see them even every year but the moment you meet up with them again you're instantly back to where you guys were on good good terms that is and there's a lot of friends that you don't actually need to spend a lot of time with them because you always know that they will be there for you so yeah i, I don't know what i'm trying to say but i definitely can relate to what you're saying i i don't know if you ever like i think everyone has gone through this where after a party or a gathering you go up to someone and then 
you're talking about the previous person, you're just like, man, I love that guy. That guy is freaking hilarious or whatever. Like, like we just really connect. And I say, I've said that to my wife a few times where, you know, after meeting someone or, or reconnecting with someone, I'm like, wow, I, I mean, we just connect really well. We're, we're just killing it. <laughs> so um, it's, it's always fun to have a lot of those people. But of course, I, I can't, you know, I'm, I would like to believe that I'm someone that's also super easy uh, to talk to. So I, I also try to, to definitely try to make the, the whole process, the whole chemistry easy. I, I just find myself as someone that uh, is really easy to get along with because, well, I, I put the effort to, to try to be that. So I think that's important. And I'll say one thing about Jerry. I also have not met Jerry. I think I met him twice. But he's been super generous to me. He introduced me to Brian. He didn't need to. He's done a lot of things to to help in different ways. And <laughs> it's funny because I read Jerry's writing about how he used to be a bad person in his own in his own view, right? And I can see none of it today. It's just he's just good for the game. There's almost no one that's universally liked more than Jerry Thompson when it comes to to magic sounds like he's been good to you also in your interactions together right i i agree um him and mike flores were i would say essential in the beginning of enterprise they were actually name dropping me when no one knew who i was in their star city games articles and i would have to say uh, reed duke uh, also plugged my name uh, as well in one of his articles. So all these people that are willing to write about me, even though people didn't know who I was, uh, was a huge help. It helped people gain some amount of recognition, whether it was like un- <laughs> subconscious or not. So uh, Jerry's been really good to me. So KYT, now we're going to switch gears from happy topics, which we have been discussing, to Maybe not so happy topics. I know that one of the things that we wanted to talk about was regrets. There are certain regrets that we have when we put so much time and obsession into magic. I just want to start things off by asking you, what type of regrets do you have when it comes to being obsessed with magic? Uh, well, if people, well, hopefully people who listen to this show have, have read either, you know, read slash skimmed your book or or also listen to, to the jerry show where it wasn't really all about him like you you poured you know you showed your heart as well in, in that episode um so for me i mean a lot of people now the the i feel like the classic answer james is like oh uh, i have no regrets i wouldn't be the person I am today, if it weren't for those things, but okay, I'm I'm probably you know that's probably the correct answer. But what things, you know, I don't know if I could change, if I could go back in time, you know, there are definitely things, and keep the knowledge that I have now, you know, definitely there would be things that that I would change if I could keep um, the knowledge I have now. So the biggest time drain for me, and I. Don't remember if it was the same for you. It was this drive uh, to be the best in the world. Uh, and this came from my chess background. I was top 10 in Quebec for, for my grade level. I was 10th uh, for most of my elementary school years and ranked, like I said, in the top 50 in Canada for, for the age group. 
of course not not for every age so i wasn't like an elite prodigy but it it was like i was one of those players that had promise and i had i had read books of all these world chess champions bobby fisher boris spassky uh, karpov um, lasker kasparov and now you know magnus carlson and I just wanted to be world champion. I was consumed by that idea, that lore. And I think as a as a kid, you just either watching cartoons or whatever, you just want to be the best in the world at something. And then when magic became my main focus, when I felt like being the best at chess wasn't feasible due to the amount of work and study that needed to be put in, you just it's just basically people are chess professionals and and I would have to have given my life to chess, uh, devote my life to chess to be able to compete at that level. I I decided to focus my energy on magic and and most of my friends didn't want to play chess anymore anyways because they felt it was too much work. So they naturally transitioned into something like magic or, or moved on completely. I want to get more into that chess part because just for people like myself or perhaps listeners who may not know, in your opinion, what does it take to be great in chess? Because I, I'm asking the question because there are certain competencies like playing piano where you can study and work really hard to get up to a certain level. But then beyond that level, it's the creativity and intangibles that help you stand out and become world-class. For you at your level of learning and progress in chess, did you feel like you knew what it took to become the best? Because it's one thing to want to be the best. It's quite another to actually do it. So I'm curious like how you, how you feel about that. I think I had a general idea, but I wouldn't say that I knew exactly. So I, I knew that there were people that needed to uh, keep up to date on opening theory. That's what some, some people think, um, which is, the first couple of moves uh, of a chess game, a lot of these top players, they, they haven't completely memorized uh, to the point where, you know, they, they know what to do for the first 10 or maybe 20 moves, depending on the variation. And you would possibly need to keep up with that. And I think a lot, but some people like Magnus Carlsen probably rely less on that because their game is so good, his talent level is so high, and his knowledge is so good that he can crush you with an inferior opening, but he has super superior middle game, end game skills. And I think the reason why I say that it takes a lot of work is because ultimately my current idea of chess and what I've read is that a lot of the edge comes from pattern recognition, is being able to recognize a lot of patterns um, and, and being able to know what, how the chess positions is likely going to evolve and stuff like that. And, and that's with a lot of experience. And if you don't constantly, I feel, think about the game or stay on top of it, I think chess is where you are going to fall dramatically behind because of that. And you need to be constantly playing against high-level competition to keep your game sharp. It's just like needing to keep your game sharp, needing to constantly improve your pattern recognition skills. All of that stuff just seemed like a lot of work. And also analyzing your games after the fact with either a master or a chess program or something like that. 
just felt like a lot of analysis and a lot of work. So I don't, I'm not going to pretend uh, that I'm a checks expert. I never ended up getting to that point, but uh, that's that's the uh, what I think would have been needed to get there. I see. And you also mentioned kind of a social factor as well that your friends were moving away from the game. So as a as a young person, I'm sure that must have also impacted your decision, right? Yeah, it's just like I just want to be I want to be the best, but I want someone to be with me along the way, whether like going to tournaments together. So you could I'm visualizing like a cartoon of me and like 10 other people next to me. And you see it slowly fade into just me like me, 10, 7, 5. (laughs) That's what actually happened as the year went by. Friends started disappearing. I ended up having more friends at the tournaments. Like I would go to these tournaments and make friends, and these guys I don't see throughout the school year, but I would see them at the next tournament the next month, and I would see more, I would have more chess friends that I made through chess tournaments than my actual friends, and at some point, even those friends start disappearing, and it was like, okay, this is no longer, I, I know, I'm no longer getting the social uh, aspect of the game that that is so attractive to me. I, I'm I know how longer have that team or that bond team bond that I felt going to the tournament together and like wanting to crush the opposition together, right? And that was missing. And I knew I couldn't be the best at everything. So hey, I, I could be the best at magic instead of chess. I would still I would still be happy. So I decided to pursue magic instead. And what happens in your path of pursuing to be the best at magic? I wish someone had told me, James, really. I wish, like, you traveled back in time and just, like, <laughs> told me or anybody or anybody could have told me how much of a time drain it was and that um, being the best is not – the thing is, a lot of the things that you would tell your younger self, uh, and I'm sure you would agree, is that your younger self would never accept it would be like – You'd be. I want. I would want to see it, right? I would have to experience the mistake myself to believe you, right? Like even if you were telling a kid to not do something, they just have to do it first before they'll they'll believe you. And it's like, who are you? You're just some old guy that doesn't know what they're talking about, right? And so I'm I'm skeptical if younger KYT would even accept older KYT's advice. But now I know that like being the best in the world does not really matter it doesn't mean anything because especially in magic because it is so subjective it's like poker now because the the variance and the luck is so high that it doesn't matter uh the main event winner of the world series of poker no one considers that guy the best player in the world no one even remembers right now that the last five and even for for world championship there was a lot of controversy about how uh, BBD, Brian Brondwin, got clinched into the World Championship over some other people because he, he had a specific slot. I think he had a, the GP slot. He got in, ended up being a world, the world champion. But do people at the elite consider him the best player in the world, even at any point of that year? No. Like If you ask a lot of them, no one's going to say that he was the best. So it's so... Like there's no crown to achieve in magic in chess. Magnus Carlsen, I think undisputed best chess player in the world, let a far less variance. That's why in magic, it's a constant um, 
constant debate, constant discussion. Like even now with the Hall of Fame, it's like, is this guy worthy? Is this guy not worthy? And with with people judging you, I think as a kid, I thought that I naturally thought maybe being world champion, I would get the, the accolade that that would get all my peers to respect me. But here, my here I am now thinking about uh, Pierre Canali when he won his pro tour. People were making fun of him on commentary because he was playing so poorly with affinity. And again, so you, you, even if you win, if you, if you end up being pro tour champion, you might not even uh, receive respect from your peers. And at some point, it, it clinched in my head. It, it like clicked that it didn't really matter uh, what people thought. I mean, all I had to prove it to, to myself, and, and that was it. Um, and sure, you want to feel like you need to prove it to others, but... You know, that's that's never going to end. And for me, all I wanted to know, what was the question I wanted to know? Could I hang with the most elite on the Pro Tour? I made two Pro Tours. I made day two on both of them. I competed against some of the biggest names in the game. I did not ever feel outclassed by them. Uh, not that I was better than them or even equal to them, but I didn't think they were significantly ahead of me. And after that, I, I, I was satisfied with with everything that I've needed to accomplish in magic. And, but the pursuit, I have to add the pursuit to be the best just drove a lot of time wasting. I was traveling six, maybe nine hours back, uh, going, coming back to these PTQs, the original style PTQs to try to qualify for the pro tour that, I mean, these tournaments are unforgiving. We're only the, the finalists, like the, the winner gets to go to the Pro Tour. Everyone loses. Everyone. Everyone who traveled. Imagine traveling nine hours. Uh, you know, uh, you're going and coming back. That's 18 hours. That's a lot of time on the weekend. And I wish I could. That's that's my regret. I wish I could have those hours back. I mean, I think. I'm not trying to say those trips weren't good. I, I think I just did too many of them. I mean, those trips definitely are some of my fondest memories of Magic, uh, where I got to hang out with different Magic people or uh, meet people. If I, I was traveling down to the States or going to a GP, like if, if I was going to a GP that you were going to or thinking about, then, you know, I got I would get to meet you. So there's definitely a lot of positives to that. But I was definitely overdoing it as well. And um, at the expense of other things that I could have uh, made significant progress in whether it just hey whether it be something like getting um like for me maybe just even having a weekend job or something um which i mean i'm opening a, a whole can of a whole can of topics with that because my parents uh, didn't want me to work my mom didn't want me to work uh, the classic reason was so that I could focus on my studies, which obviously doesn't really make sense because I was spending my weekends traveling really far to PTQs. So I think the, the regret was to, if we had to sum it up really quickly, is that spent too much time focusing on, on being the best and designing that when now it's like I, I realize that it doesn't matter. Um, just focus on, on 
for me, it's just like I just have to focus in on proving uh, it to myself. And even now, since I've taken a long break from Magic, that's my motivation. It would be to qualify, but but that's it, and to see if I can be compete with one of these guys, with one of the elite once again. And but that would be it. And and during my PTQ run, I, I just wish I wasn't so tunnel vision to to just do that i then realized the opportunity cost right i would just look at the ptq calendar and see like which one i could go to okay i'm free i'm free i'm free i'm going to each of them and it's like i never really thought like hey maybe i I should be doing something else even if it meant working on a website learning a computer language just doing something more useful um or even saving money because there's a lot of costs to going to these tournaments, getting even a cheap Airbnb or hotel, uh, buying the last minute play set that you need to fill out your cyborg or, or, or your main deck of 60 cards. There, there's a lot of cost to that. And um, it, it took me until like getting prepared to get married, as you would know, to <laughs> freak out about money and, and budget and stuff like that. And, uh, if, if I had more of a long-term vision when I was grinding about uh, things that now I find way more important, then I wouldn't have been in a spot where I was uh, stressed out of my mind. So, yeah, there's, I think there's a lot uh, that I just said to unpack. It definitely sounds like you're more at peace with yourself now, though. You can look back and you can see that, and you can understand that being the best is never the best or it's never going to be good enough and you've come out of it with some introspection that's what it sounds like to me yeah i'm happy where with where i'm at to have picked up these lessons to to look back and and be actually be able to recognize and state what i've learned not be like uh i think uh, no I, I know exactly what i would have done differently so I, i'm happy with that because then i can carry these lessons forward as I think you're you're alluding to. Yeah, and that's also why when we were talking about these folks on social media telling you that they have a quick fix, it never works that way. Because even if the younger or the older KYT went back in time and the younger KYT actually knew that you were from the future, there's no way that you, uh, he would have listened to you, right? Because I, I remember having these discussions with my mom where she would be telling me something and I would actually kind of feel like her advice was spot on. But I would just say, hey, mom, let me make my own mistakes. You know, I, I'm probably going to be wrong here, but you have to let me make the mistakes so I can I can grow so I can have those scars. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, it's always I think the, the for me, the, the most classic is someone who's who a young person dating someone else. Right. They're too in love. They're not going to like you say he's a bad guy or she's a bad girl. They're not going to listen to you. I mean, maybe. I think 99% of the time, person's going to stick with who they're in love with and find out maybe eventually that you're right, that he is a cheater or she is a bad person or he is, I don't know, uh, mentally unstable. I don't know. Like whatever the uh, bad thing about that person is, it's it's hard to really tell someone that and um, and – that's what I always think about because I've had a lot of friends of mine be like, Hey, should I stick with this person? I'm like, you know, you're not, <laughs> you know, you don't care asking. what I say. You're just gonna, right. you're just asking for, you just want to commiserate. That's all. 
Right, right. You you want you want approval, and if you don't get it, you don't care. But if you get it, it's a plus. So it's pure upside for you to ask, right? So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and uh, I get that. So, but it's hard. It really is hard, and I, I do feel. Uh, the thing is, I, I do feel like people making their own mistakes is good in a way because then the lesson is deeper. So I can't say that, you know, I uh, I sometimes fantasize about writing a book of all my life's lessons and giving it to my kid, but it's like <laughs> they're not going to believe me. Or and, and some stuff, you know, they have to, they probably would want to experience themselves and it might be even more beneficial because the lesson will be even deeper. Yeah, I think fundamentally people don't change unless it comes from within, right? It, it's very hard for you to take anything from someone else, from me, from a book, from a podcast, unless you want the change to happen from within first. That sounds kind of cliched, but that's really how I feel after, after being exposed to many different people and having different conversations. Yeah, I, I agree with you. So let's talk about the social media aspect of things is I know that now you're helping to that's that's basically your job right it's it's uh, it's in your job description there's different ways that you need to think about growing the podcast and other content you're working on let me start by asking you what is your social media strategy what kinds of things are you trying and maybe this is too inside baseball but I love to know what your current strategy is and maybe how it's even evolved over the years. It's kind of a two-part question. So, so I really want to talk this over with you because, of course, you are interested in, in growing this podcast and and other stuff that, that you might uh, be working on. And I find it interesting that, uh, again, a, a general lesson as a kid that you learn about all these things or all these feel-good things that uh, aren't exactly true in the real world and, and it's sad I, I guess it's a shame it's not true so here's what i'm talking about like never judge a book by its cover and that is just not how the world works and that's not how social media works it's all about packaging even my my wife will say that she walks into a bookstore so i i, I check reviews for books before i get i buy a book i i personally don't care about the cover but my wife actually cares about the cover. She she's more drawn to books that have this like mysterious cover or a cover that looks like people put some sort amount of effort on it. And social media is the same. So so the the main example is the YouTube thumbnail, right? Your YouTube video might be crap, but if it has a nice thumbnail that draws people's attention while they're watching other videos, you're going to get views. So the so the packaging, the don't judge a book by its cover thing, like you have to throw that out the window. And it's all about packaging. And it's a shame, but it's the truth. It's why Ty Lopez is rich, the packaging. He has a Lamborghini. He has bookshelves with all these books. And a lot of people are drawn by that packaging. So the strategy now, I don't have a secret strategy. And in fact, right now, I'm trying. I'm still trying to figure things out. What happened with Manage Deprive is what why it was the most known or the biggest in Canada was it was the only one, to be honest. There was no competition. It was easy. There was no secret sauce. But it, it was also helped by big Twitter people who had a lot of followers retweeting the content that I was posting or telling their followers, hey, check this out. That helped a lot. 
And I see a lot of people just using Twitter the wrong way. They're just completely, I don't know what they're doing. They're just reading random articles or hearing these like words, like hashtags, and they feel like they have to put 20 hashtags in their Twitter as your Twitter strategy, as your post, you just put like infinite hashtags. And it's like, no, people are going to block you or ignore you because you just look like a spam bot. So I don't know. People are blind to that. In Twitter, so the strategy for Twitter is you really got to go out there and and connect and talk to people and give them a reason to follow you. Uh, if people, I would say if, if people follow you on your Twitter account, you should follow them back and just say hi. Even though maybe in the future you don't like the stuff that they're posting, but just start start a conversation. Hey, you, you never know. And connecting with them might increase the odds that they will share your stuff. And again, what I want to talk about before was that you need to track people uh, on Twitter that have a huge following that will want to retweet your stuff. Or when you have a podcast, uh, James, uh, get get a guest with thousands of followers and tell them when the episode is going to be up and, and then you tweet that out, have them retweet it. And, and that's going to be huge for your Twitter following. So that would be the Twitter strategy. Uh, Facebook, I think is the biggest player right now. It's the one outside. It, it just feels like that's the one that draws the most eyeballs, at least with anything I do magic related. It seems to be the number one place uh, when I post anything on the face to face games Facebook page. The challenge with that is that with podcasts, it's really hard to market a podcast because there's what I would like to say friction. People can't just like view a post on Twitter or on Facebook and be able to experience your podcast. What they would have to do is either on their desktop, go to the link on the browser and click play on if there's a web player or they would have to go on their phone download an app if they don't have a podcast app and then find your feed uh, and then download the feed download the latest episode and then they can experience your episode so i think that's a lot of of friction and that's when people will see you tweet about your episode and those people will never even if they have the intentions to they're never going to get all the way to your podcast. And, and it's a shame. And I think that's the challenge that I'm, I'm looking at as to how to advertise that. But now I'm looking at different avenues uh, to, to wrap up so, sort of this segment. So, so I get to pick some stuff apart is, is YouTube, just using YouTube as uh, a different platform to, to attack a different audience. And that's why I do my podcast live is be able to have some YouTube content that's left over and then use that content and repackage it as a podcast that's on my podcast feed. Use that also to publish on magic.facefacegames.com as sort of like an article plus the podcast. So, so you have one piece of content that can go through many different channels. Um, and, and so there's different platforms recycling the content that you'd use on different platforms and then also repurposing it in specific to that platform. So for example, I just did a podcast with Jerry, very good podcast, but what I'm likely going to do is to chop up. And I think you've seen other YouTubers do this, chop up some highlights and then post them on different places. So post like a 15 minute clip, a 15 second clip rather on Facebook or on Twitter, and it's like, for more, for the full episode, click here. Uh, People are way more likely to get intrigued by something like that 
than than like a full three hour podcast that they don't care about. So they might actually look, hey, there's there's KYT's face on it, 15 seconds. I'll just check out what he's saying. And then, you know, they might get the hook. Actually, one, one last thing, and Instagram. I think Instagram is a huge thing. Uh, but again, the challenge is how to really optimize this platform to get your content out, to get them to go to your website because they don't allow you to put links there. So you have to be creative. They can't click any links uh, on your Instagram photo. And that's why a lot of people are like, hey, check out link in bio because that's the only place right now that Instagram allows you to have like a clickable link. Uh, Unless you have a business profile, then you can do a lot of other stuff. One last thing, Instagram stories and Facebook stories. That's new stuff that people are now only starting to take advantage of to see um, what they could do with that. So yeah, I'm I'm just telling you like a lot of different networks and thoughts that my brain has to go through it and see what to optimize. And yeah, I actually don't know what the best thing to do is. I just have a, a general idea for, for each one right now. I would say it's tough because there's really no playbook for success. If you look at how some of the the most successful social media folks are doing it, they're all kind of doing it differently and they've all tailored their strategy for different audiences. So I think it's an exciting time, but also a challenging time because you have to navigate all these different platforms. And like you said, things like audio don't translate very well. So you have to figure out ways to, to use video or other things to, to kind of make it work. Yeah, I, I, I won't even know what the best way is yet still for, for audio. I'm I'm inconvinced that, that people just, like even the game podcast, it's like, hey, they, they make a post. Uh, check out our new episode on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. And I'm not sure how many people are going to click on that. Like they're not, they're going to be like, oh, I don't, I don't want to click on something and just go like be led to somewhere else. I just want to go to the content right now or something like that. So it's, it's a huge challenge. And, and yeah, like you said, people are now putting in the work. Their YouTube thumbnails are, are on point or, or their name, their YouTube uh, videos with, with specific names so that people type certain things, they'll show up first. So there, there's some competition now. There's some competition to, to be the best at, at optimizing the content. But I still think in the magic world, it's not... It's just not done well enough. So if you're a content creator looking to jump in, I, I think there's a lot of room for you to jump ahead. Is there any advice that you would give to folks who are starting to do this for the first time? Because you've outlined some different strategies that are quite specific to different platforms. I heard one piece of advice, which is pretty good, which is be genuine online and try to make real connections with people. Are there other things that you would suggest new content creators try to do when it comes to social media? Oh, man, for people just starting out, it's going to be tough. But I might have to say that, uh, wow, for, for people starting from scratch, because I, I see a lot of people that, that try to start from scratch. And what ends up happening is they're, they're stuck. They only have like 15 or 30 subscribers on YouTube. They only have the, the 30 followers on Twitter. And, and they just don't know how to expand from that or, or that small small amount of people on Instagram and it's it's going to be tough. It's going to have to be genuine. I think 
my strategy would be genuine interaction with with people that that share common interests with you and, and that might like the product, the article, the website, the podcast that you're trying to market and try to grow uh, that that following over time. And I think Twitter is a good tool for that. Like for example, I made a a bet on the Vegas Golden Knights winning the Stanley Cup. But somehow it was covered by a lot of big sports websites, including ESPN. And the only reason that happened was because I'm friends. I became friends with someone who writes for fantasy hockey websites. I met him on Twitter and he was friends with the writer for ESPN. And that's how we connected. So there's a lot of connections to be made. I think that if you're starting out and there's podcasts that you like, there's uh, YouTubers that you like, whatever, and they're on Twitter and they're not too big where they're actually respond to you. You should tweet those people out, have, you know, start genuine friendships like me and you. It's just like, we you know, consider you more than just an acquaintance at this point. And it's like, we just met online. And I think people should make more of an effort to do that. Like the A team, people on the A team, and crazy talk uh, and and first strike and and all these people a lot of them not all of them a lot of them i just met online i met jerry online I met mike flores online and he helped jumpstart everything i do but don't again i think the the mantra i'm trying to repeat is like stay genuine don't be fake in order to try to get people to, to come on your show or or to uh for your own benefit i mean i I think people would appreciate if you want a general genuine conversation interaction and that's how i would do it because if you don't do that like who's going to every time you tweet something who's going to retweet it you're just like a lot of people do this a lot of my friends who try to jump into content creation they're just screaming into a void They, they have a facebook page with like no buddy no likes and they think that by posting something like some something magical is going to happen and they're going to gain a thousand followers overnight, that's not going to happen. It's it's a process for a lot of us uh, to start um, from from the beginning to, to have that following. But if you, however, really depends on the platform you want to attack. If you actually want to become a YouTuber, you don't really need that initial following or even friends and stuff like that. You can start with things that people are just actively searching for. So people that no, had no credentials or anything, if they were the first people to, to do like Bitcoin or whatever the hot topic of the day was, like I see people having like a zillion subs and a zillion subscribers because they reviewed a Ty Lopez course because that's what people were searching up. They wanted to know like Ty Lopez review or whatever. Or... Um, like I said, Bitcoin or BitConnect, stuff like that, all these like keywords. And if you constantly do that, you'll be at the top of the search uh, results and people are going to click you. You're going to get a lot of views. So you can go that route as well. Yeah. So it really depends on the networks, but you, could, you should focus on bringing – all you have to figure out is like you do need to figure out how you're getting that audience. And you can't blindly make content. Like it's a feel-good thing to say, oh, they, they'll come eventually. But you got you still have to have some sort of plan. You can't just say that because eventually you'll be like, oh, God, no one's actually listening or watching. And I've spent you know three months 
producing nothing but content and nothing's happening. You know, it's not going to magically appear. That's what I want to say. Yeah, it's this interesting balance of you need to create things for a certain audience because you don't want it to be so niche that nobody cares about it. But I think at the same time, you also need to intersect it with what you believe in. And you want to be doing it for the right reasons because you don't want to be doing a review of Ty Lopez if you don't really care about it. Maybe that's part of being genuine as well. Or maybe you have a strategy where reviewing Ty Lopez is the gateway to get people to know about you and then you can do other things. I see lots of content creators be able to find a pretty good balance in that they do videos or content that gets people in, but then they also do things that are more scratching their own creative itch. And so that's always a challenge. And as you're talking about it, I, I, I'm actually thinking of the advice that Seth Godin gave when he was on a podcast once. I think it was on the Tim Ferriss podcast. He said that everybody wants to build things to be used by a thousand, a million people. But how about just building something first that five people want to use, that 15 people want to use, that 50 people want to use? I think sometimes the danger is also we have these grand thoughts about how we're going to be the number one content creator in in Canada or the US or wherever. But how about just getting five people to really connect with your content and and use that as your humble, more humble baseline? That could actually be a good way to prove that you have something. Because if five people don't even like your stuff, how are a million people going to like your stuff? It kind of goes into the whole like if you're building something for everybody, you're building something for nobody. I, I like that. I like that. As long as those five people aren't people are just aren't just yes people who are like, oh man, that's awesome. And yeah, they're not just like your you your family members. <laughs> and then you quiz them about your show, and they clearly didn't listen. So that's that's awkward. Uh, but uh, yeah, yeah. The the thing you talked about, in my opinion, if someone wanted to grow their channel, like a channel of a YouTube channel, quickly without, and then maybe funneling that to something else, like you said. Like the thing that people could easily do is YouTube reaction videos because that's what, as long as you're reacting to what's currently trendy, you're going to get hits because people are searching for that stuff. So, for example, uh, it's silly. I'm not going to do it because I think uh, oh, maybe I would <laughs> to, to, for fun. But America's Got Talent is going on. Um, and if you film yourself doing a reaction video with America's Got Talent in the title and stuff like that, you're going to get massive amounts of hits because that's what's hot right now. And I've seen that trend every time I, because I, I was curious about how many how many hits these uh, type of videos get. Every time I'm searching, because I love watching uh, Shin Lim who performs magic and uh, other stuff that's trendy, I check out the the reaction videos and they're just regular folks sometimes a couple that started from scratch their youtube channel from scratch and they gain a really quick following because they they were just reacting to to what's trendy so i mean you can go that route as well but uh just just throwing it out there as a strategy if that's your goal just to have a channel with with a lot of quick followers i would say um but uh back to what you said yeah just start i would just start with a, a few people 
to I was just happy. I didn't expect the whole country to like the stuff I was doing at Mana Deprived. I was just hoping for a small beginning and hope that it snowballed to something big. And eventually it did to something. Re- it wasn't massive. It never got to SCG or Channel Fireball size. But hey, it was it was something. Uh, and what I was trying to say before with uh, there's no playbook is that when you look at a lot of quote unquote successes, there's a lot of timing and luck involved too that people don't often see because there's a kind of a survivorship bias where the things that rise to the the top that you hear about are the ones that have become successful. And so it's it's easy to get discouraged, which is why I'm saying just from my own experience, you have to be doing it for the right reasons. You have to do it because you personally believe in it. Of course, you want to do it for an audience, but you have to also commit, if that makes sense. Right, right. The, the survivor bias things is what, uh, I mean, I, me and you were drawn to the same amount of content, and that's why I bring up, like, I can bring up Tim Ferriss or, or, or Ty Lopez and, and all that, that world. Um, not, not that we like Ty Lopez, but you know he, he's attached to a lot of type of content that we both like to consume. And I think survivor bias is why all these guys are, are fascinated to read these books about billionaires and how to be a billionaire and watching interviews of billionaires to, to see how they can incorporate their lessons and practices to their life. And it's like, it's like, man, it doesn't that stuff is not going to help you in a lot of cases. And uh, I see a lot of people falling for that trap, for sure. Yeah, and on that topic, we should probably talk about topic number three. <laughs> I know I know, we, we were discussing this after I listened to your latest episode on, about Rachel Mack. And talk to me about the dangers of today's entrepreneurial in- influencers. I don't know if it's conscious or, or subconscious, James. When they, when they see Ty Lopez, his model, is basically what I sort of talked about. You have to present a strong cover, book cover, image. Him, it's Lamborghinis, bookshelves. A lot of the strategy now to monetize is that you give a free product. Like I guess it's like a sort of freemium strategy. But you give them a free product and then attractive that appeals to a lot of people. And then you direct them to something that they have to pay money for. You monetize it. And that's not like it's not an evil strategy. It just depends on if what you're selling them has actual value. So the reason why I I'm not going to speak for you. I think someone like Ty Lopez can be a little phony is because he has this massive advertising campaign. He puts together such a good presentation. You're really drawn by it. And then he tries to sell you on these really expensive courses that are really overpriced, but people are jumping on board because his presentation and his charisma is so, frankly, so damn good to the majority of people on earth. So that's why he's so successful. Now, the danger I feel is that a lot of acquaintances that I've had or or friends or a guy that I talked about on my show, the Rachel Mack, a guy who I thought was a friend, got too attracted to this type of way of making money. In fact, this guy has now started a website. He's charging $190 uh, for 45 minutes of consultation, whether it's like life coaching or on stock investing and stuff like that. And uh, this guy just 
doesn't have the credentials or doesn't know anything. He he even admits that he suffered depression last year and nearly lost all of it in the stock market. And now you want people to pay you $190 US for 45 minutes of, of your advice? Like that's that's kind of ridiculous, but people are are drawn to this type of strategy. Even yeah, even more um, I've seen people recycle Ty Lopez's course. So Ty Lopez has a thousand dollars course for you to become a social media expert, for you to become uh, to go to different companies and charge them a thousand dollars a month to be their social media manager. And people have bought into that course, and then other people have decided to take his course and then reteach it, repackage it, and sell their own course, their own $400 course. So I just think that, and they're all clearly out to make a quick buck. And uh, their way of free content and attracting you is that they're reviewing the Ty Lopez course. They're saying how they're using different aspects of it to, to make all this money. And then now they're selling their course. They started their own media company. And when you check out these media companies, their websites, it's like they have no following. They, It's like, what's going on? Like, what strategies are they using? They have no client. And, and they really just want to get you to buy, to pay $400 for their course. So for, for me, I'm just, I don't know. People just get attracted by this model and they're out to make a quick buck. And that's really... Um, disturbing to me because th there are genuine courses but now people are throwing the word master a thousand dollar mastermind or or two hundred dollar ebooks and stuff like that and it's uh yeah and, and i've seen because I'm, I'm just too curious and <laughs> i might come across as crazy but i've seen these people these testimonials these people who follow the ty lopez course and what you're doing is again the freemium model. What what he's recommending is that you go to all these different companies or stores, and you give them an audit, and you tell a social media audit. You you tell them that you're doing something for free, that you're going to analyze their social media for free, and that's what like builds your credibility in front of potential clients. They're like, oh oh, you you, know, you might know what you're talking about because you're you're giving me an audit. And you're giving me advice, like free, everything's free. And why not give you a shot at $1,000 a month or whatever? So, but like these people don't deserve it. They're not, they've never done social media professionally in their lives. And they're wanting to charge $1,000 per month at it. I, I just challenge, I, I'm curious to see any one of these people that follow these courses that are able to keep charging these other companies or restaurants or stores for that amount of money when they clearly, in my opinion, don't know what they're doing and don't know what they're talking about. So that's what bugs me, James. I wanted to get this off my chest that a lot of people just, yeah, are attracted by that or think they're an expert quickly. Like everyone's an expert now. Everyone has an ebook or, or something to sell and that's troubling. That's a good observation. I would just say though that the world is pretty meritocratic so if you're offer a $4,000 course or $190 for 45 minutes of your time, there are people that are going to bite on it and there are people that will not. So I like to think that the world's pretty fair in that sense that if you really do price it 
to make a quick buck, sooner or later the quick buck will not come, or it may not come at all. So maybe it's just my 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 opinion, but I actually think there's something very masterful about how Ty Lopez does it because especially when you can see through what he's trying to do, it's actually a very fascinating case study in how to do it. I I can see how there might be lots of imitators that want to be their own Ty Lopez, but I think Ty Lopez does quite well because he can master the psychology of it. I actually think of Ty Lopez as kind of a a modern day Tony Robbins, not not in the sense that I think Tony Robbins is phony or that Ty Lopez is phony, but I think there's something about this like very primal primordial thing where people want to be attracted to success and I think subconsciously people are willing to overlook the deception as long as they feel good about giving money over to whoever to it's more like a placebo effect uh i think that's how advanced we are now as human beings or maybe how unadvanced we are i actually joke with a a good friend of mine about ty lopez all the time we always joke about how we're in the ty lopez fan club and oh have you listened to the ty lopez podcast yeah i know it's it's really it's really funny but i i actually think that when you can see through the deception that he that he brings there's actually certain elements of his presentation that you can use in your own way not to say that you're going to go and become the next ty lopez nobody can whoa but but there's certain techniques that are that are quite that are quite usable and and as long as you're using them fairly ethically like i'm not going to start offering four thousand dollar course but There's certain things that you just you understand when you start watching his videos, and as long as you can see through it, I, I don't know if I'm making sense or I'm I'm coming off as oh. really pro Ty Lopez, but it's really fascinating now because I feel like I'm at the point in my life in adulthood where I'm not going to be hating on things anymore. I just trying to see like why is it working for that person? You know, I used to listen to pop songs on the radio. I'd be like, oh, that song sucks, Backstreet Boys or NSYNC or whatever, right? And now I'm just I'm just like, hmm, interesting. Why is that appealing to millions of people? Hey, I like that. Also, so many points, uh, James. But you you spoken like a true Tyler Lopez fanboy. <laughs> I have to say that. <laughs> yeah. But but I think I think I, I I actually well, if you notice, I'm sure you're gonna agree with me that I have broken down like things that he's done that that we can all apply. Like the whole don't judge a book by its cover. The cover is important. And his presentation proves that, that if you can show yourself to have credibility, uh, you okay, it might be genuine, it might not be. The importance is that you show it and you show it in a professional way. You can't, um, you can't like do a MTG podcasts uh, from your bathroom or something like dressed like an idiot. So he shows presentation is key. So you can learn a lot from his strategy and stuff like that. So I, I don't necessarily think that we're a meritocracy because I've just seen people benefit from this a lot. And um, especially these people who put out these courses, I think they've benefited a lot. Or I've just seen them come up with a lot of videos and then next thing you know they're super rich because they sold a course or, or sold an amazon how to sell an amazon course but at the same time i think that there is a lot to be learned i i've actually downloaded uh the ty lopez uh gary vanerchuk a lot of these people podcasts to check them out and the way ty lopez has produced those podcasts like the the intro music 
the beginning, the end. I, hey, kudos to him. Really well done. And, and his whole strategy, his whole shove all his money into YouTube marketing has clearly worked and made him like a pseudo celebrity. So, yeah, for sure. I do admire uh, at the same time, I, I do admire the things that he has done and accomplished. I don't want to come across as a as a hater, but uh, yeah, he definitely overcharges and that's it. But there's something to learn about him. So that, that's it. You don't know how much money they made from the course. You don't know how rich they really are if the house that they're showing in the background is actually rented or not so it's it's a lot of his perception maybe the maybe the master plan is for him to market a four thousand dollar course so that you think he has a four thousand dollar course even if one person buys it you don't know that nobody's buying the course you know right right but but that's something i learned a lot is that just an aside to to gain and and i think we, we sort of talked about it it's sort of related to Seth Godin when people like want to create something that a lot of people want. I think that is like the path to, I guess, a large amount of money when you can come up with something uh, that scales that will sell to a lot of people without you necessarily needing to put more effort as that number increases. So an example would be like an ebook or a course. Uh, you would spend your efforts marketing it, but you know if you come up with a course, it's like your profit is determined by you know how how many people you can sell it to, and it could be lucrative, right? If it, if it hits a certain level, you could even even at a small price point, you can be making a lot of money off something. What's next for you? What's next on the horizon for you? What do you have coming up in your magic content creation career or otherwise? I'm trying to break through, like actually break through how to market on social media in Magic. Even though I've been trying for so long, it's just a huge challenge and a constant learning process. And the social media net networks constantly evolve, and I think I'm just really excited about that. Like Instagram and, and Facebook Stories, like I mentioned in, in the second segment, it's just. How do you go about doing that? Or different types of content, um, magic content, is, is what I'm excited about. So beyond the usual, I think what's been stagnant about the magic content creation community is we're just doing the same thing. We're just following the old SCG model. SCG was copied by Channel Fireball, just articles and videos, articles on videos. And then SCG experimented with like a Versus series and stuff like that. But people are still doing the same thing. And then Jerry, probably the most famous pro player doing a podcast, at the time started the game podcast, started a Patreon People are seeing like people actually want this. People are actually willing to pay for it. Now PV, Paulo Vitor and others have decided to start their own pro podcast. So they're jumping on board because, hey, they saw someone have success, even though, in my opinion, these guys should have been doing it years ago. They should have started when I was doing content. They have stronger credentials, so they have a higher ceiling when it comes to attracting uh, people that want the top of the line pro material. And now PV even uh, came out with something called Spikes Academy, which is a course, <laughs> a course, a $100 course. I'm, I haven't checked. I don't know it if it's worth $100 or not. But from what I hear, it's selling really well. And 
this is again something that he could have done years ago and I, I, I assure you there was a market but we just had like Patrick Chapin books a Mike Flores audiobook you know people weren't being creative and I think the pros don't know how much money that they can make uh, honestly uh, James they, they they're content because they're just following the routine of submitting an article to Star City Games or Channel Fireball submitting submitting the lazy video but if they all work together to start, like imagine this, they started a subscription site. All these pros, like even the five of the top pros in the world, they started a subscription site where they revealed everything that they played, gave you advanced videos and articles. There is a genuine market for that. So I'm not going to do that stuff, but I'm giving that as an example of things that are popping in my mind as in terms of different types of content that could be out there. Um, the YouTube world, for example, is also something that is not tapped into. Right now you have Telerian Academy who built up his YouTube channel via product reviews. He was the only one doing reviews of sleeves, reviews of, of binders and stuff like that. And there's no giant YouTuber that focuses on competitive play, right? So why isn't anyone doing that? I mean, I'm, I'm telling you, if Jerry or whoever started doing YouTube videos, they would kill it. But they would need the neutral guy, the, the guy who – the essential guy, the guy who does the video editing and uploading. That's the key component. And once they figure that guy out, then the sky's the limit for, for whoever decides to go there. So that's what excites me. All this, like, optimizing social media and trying to – crush different types of content yeah great food for thought so kyt thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me about what's been going on in your life and i hope we can talk again soon my pleasure pleasure's all mine and i hope to to talk again for sure take care and uh, be well you too This concludes our episode with KYT. Please subscribe to Humans and Magic on iTunes or on SoundCloud to ensure that you get new episodes as they are released. To learn more about Humans and Magic, please visit humansandmagic.com. And to support Humans and Magic, please go to patreon.com slash jamessu. That's J-A-M-E-S-H-S-U. We'll see you next time.